You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Nathan. I can just about guarantee, promise even, that you will never hear this passage preached for some pastors in view of a call night. Never. This is not any pastor's go-to passage. This is a weird one. You get called and invited to go speak at a conference or a retreat. No pastor in the history of pastoring has ever chosen this passage because it's a bit strange. But it's marvelous. And it reminds me of a story. Really, it's more of a legend. And there's, there's no way we can verify it, of course, because that's, well, that's, that's how legends are. But it's a great story. Some 2,300 years ago, there was a famous person, I'm sure you've all heard of, called Alexander the Great. And he's a world conqueror, essentially conquered the known world at that time in lightning speed. And the story goes like this, that Alexander the Great, sitting in some of his conquered palaces in Babylon, is having a massive, incredibly enormous feast, a banquet to celebrate all of his conquest, all of his victories, and now all of his treasure and all of his possessions and power and wealth and glory. One of his generals has a furrowed brow. This general has a problem. This general has a daughter whose time has now come to be married, and she is promised to be married to some dignitary, some other general, some wealthy prince, or whomever it might be. But this presents a problem for this general. All his life, he's only known war. He's been a warrior, and he has amassed for himself no possessions, and yet he is elevated to the position of prominence as a general in Alexander's army. So he has to find a way, according to the customs of antiquity, to pay for this wedding of his daughter to some other dignitary, whomever it might be. And so he hatches a plan. He asks if it would be permissible for him to speak to his commander, to go and speak to Alexander the Great, the great conquering general. Permission and access are granted. And so the general approaches Alexander, and Alexander says, yes, speak. What is it that you need? What is it that you want to speak with me about? And the general explains to him that his daughter is ready to be married, but he wants to marry her to the appropriate dignitary, but he does not have the means. And so, my commander, would you give me what I need to fund and to finance this wedding? And Alexander the Great looks at his general and says, well, tell me how much you need. Without missing a beat, the general gives this enormous exorbitant, outlandish sum. And everybody gathered around who was watching and listening, everyone stops and they gasp. (gasps) And they hold their breath. What kind of audacity to ask Alexander the Great for that sum of money? What would happen to this general? Would, Would Alexander, would he hang him? Would he behead him? Would he just run him through with his sword? What would happen to this man? And to everyone's astonishment, Alexander the Great leaps to his feet and he smiles. And he embraces the general. He says, ah, my friend, all that you have asked and more you shall have and more. Now drink. The general went away happy. 
recognizing that he entered that feasting hall with nothing but going away with everything. And later on, his counselors, Alexander the Great's counselors and his, his treasurers asked him, how could you be so, so profligate, so generous, so outlandishly giving? And Alexander the Great said, do you not understand? No one has ever shown me this kind of honor. When this man asked me for so much, he was telling all of you that he knew that I have the means, I have the wealth, I have the power, and I have the will. I have never been so honored in all of my life. The general, you see, got to be the recipient of tremendous blessing. He's the one who gets to go out, well, living our big idea for the morning. You've heard the passage read already from Nathan. Our big idea from Paul's passage here at the end of Galatians is simply this. Celebrate the nothing that you bring. It's an exhortation. This is the point of any sermon, to get us to somehow be changed, to approach God's word, and to be changed in some way by it. And so my charge this morning is that we're going to come to this tricky, difficult passage, and that will impact our thinking, that we will think differently about ourselves, about our God, and about one another, and that we will begin to be characterized by those who celebrate the nothing that we bring. We are in a study of the book of Galatians. We began this in early January. Lord willing, we will conclude our sermon series on Galatians at the end of May, May 28th, so we have four more after today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this series. It has been convicting and challenging to me. Don't be fooled, Paul says, by any other gospel because there is no other gospel. My gospel, what I am saying to you, Paul says, is directly from God. You don't like it? Take it up with him. But don't be fooled for a nanosecond by any other message. The gospel, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. And the instant you hear anybody trying to add to that, you stop it. Because any time we try to add to the gospel, we actually subtract from it. And so, no, we do not want to allow any sort of divergent teaching about the gospel. Paul will fight fiercely for the message of Galatians, which is Christian freedom, joy, and liberty. Now, we get to the end of chapter 4 here, and it really sort of is the culmination of four chapters of theology. We're going to turn the corner next week, Lord willing, and get really into some practical applications. But chapter 4, right here, we land the plane with all of Paul's theological thrust. So I'm going to try to unpack this as briefly as I can, and then uh, we'll see what we learn from it. So again, chapter 4, verse 21 of Galatians. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now Paul says, listen, I, I hear that you churches of Galatia, there you sit, and you heard me preach the gospel to you. My first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. I came through. It wasn't my plan to be there, but God took me there by grace to preach the good news to you. And you received it. You heard it. You resonated. You responded in joy. And you took me in, even though I was icky to behold. Ew, ew, ew. He's got eye stuff happening there. You took care of me. I had malaria or some such affliction. And you loved me because I was as a messenger of Jesus himself. And you responded that you understood there was nothing else you had to do 
to achieve or to have right standing before God. But as soon as I left and started heading back east towards Syria and Antioch, some other people came in and they started telling you, oh, 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 it is faith, yes, but also plus works. You have to do some stuff. You have to abide by the law of Moses. And Paul does not merely mean there the Old Testament Ten Commandments. He means Torah. The law of Moses, meaning all of the instruction, all of the strictures, the regulations, the codes of conduct from the Old Testament. These people said, well, gosh, yeah, we, we want to have right standing before God. So, okay, I guess, we'll, I guess we'll do that. And Paul hears about it and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You who want to be under the law, have, have y'all even read the thing? I'm pretty sure you don't. If I can quote from that great theological piece of cinema, Three Amigos, where Paul says, essentially, you keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means, the law. You don't know. It's very hard. Would you say it's a law, El Jefe? See? So you don't understand what it means because you haven't really read it. If you really read it, you would not be wanting to go back to it. It also reminds me, I drive up and down Broadway in Tyler, and I see this happen on other vehicles around the country. And, and, and maybe, you've, maybe you've seen this bumper sticker too. Or maybe you're even here this morning and you have this bumper sticker. Well, you know what? That's okay. There's grace for that. Um, Not for me, but from the Lord Jesus, but not for me. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker. It says, quite simply, coexist. Ah, what a delightful message that is. And every letter is made up of a different religious symbol from one of the major world religions. Oh, can't we all just get along? And I want to say, have you even read it? Have you read the other religious texts, the sacred writings? that say, kill anybody who does not agree with me. That seems like a kind of a stretch for coexistence. Have you even read all the other texts? Because they, by definition, say that we cannot coexist. So either it's a misunderstanding of what those religions stand for, or it's simply, more than likely, ignorance. It's a failure to have actually read them. Paul says, wait a minute, you're trying to go back to the law of Moses and Torah? Have y'all even read the thing? Because if you had, you would not want to return to that. That's a bad deal. He continues, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, let me go ahead and spoil the punchline. What Paul's going to say here is so utterly astonishing. It is such a bombshell. It is so deeply offensive that this passage right here is one of the primary reasons that many Jewish people simply cannot and will not accept Christianity because of what Paul says right here. Paul's going to say, listen, if you're trying to follow the law of the Old Testament, if you're trying to practice a pattern of performance, no matter who you think you are, you're not who you think you are. These false teachers had come into the churches of Galatia and they said, we're from Jerusalem. We're the true patriots. We're the ones who really bring truth from the the center of God's people. You have to do all of this stuff. And Paul's going to say something so astonishing. He says, no, if that's your message, that you have to do all of this stuff, then you are not a descendant of Isaac. You are a descendant of Ishmael. Whoa. Whoa, that's a wordy dirt, Paul. That is about as strong an offensive knock as you can make. And Paul says, let me make my case. Let me explain. 
Now, there was a time when simply being Jewish meant that you were a child of Abraham. That was in the Old Testament. But now things have changed. The New Testament has come. And if you're still trying to abide by all the strictures of the Old Testament, you are taking yourself out of being in the line of Isaac, the child of blessing and promise, and you are associating yourself with Ishmael. That's a bad idea. Now, that's a big statement. So Paul's making this illustration using all of this stuff from the Old Testament. So to really make sure we land this passage fairly, let's do that. Let's unpack very quickly what Paul's talking about. So we invite you to go back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I want to explain what Paul is referencing here. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. This is what we read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. <laughs> but Abram said, um, actually, yeah, about that. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Um, you're telling me I'm going to have great lineage and heritage and legacy? I don't even have any kids. That's a hard thing. And in antiquity, your value, your worth, your heritage was how many kids you had. And he's going, all I got is this Syrian servant, and I'm pretty sure he's stealing from me. Like, that's all I got. What am I supposed to do? I guess he's going to be my heir. I guess I have to help out if you're going to say that I'm going to have many, many people, many descendants. I guess it'll be my Syrian servant. Mm, God's got a better idea. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God says, nope, I don't provide through your potential. I don't provide through your performance. I don't provide through your practice. I provide through my promise. You will have a son yourself biologically. Now go outside and count the stars. Take your time. I got all eon. No, you can't, can you? That's right, Abe. But your descendants will be just like that. And Abraham believes him. This had to have been particularly hard. You see, his name was Abram. Abram in Hebrew means father of nations. <laughs> yeah. And names meant something in antiquity. Abraham lived and existed at the crossroads of commerce in antiquity. If you were coming up north from Egypt, you went by Abraham. If you were coming east from Babylon or Assyria, you went by Abraham's house. If you're coming north from the Hittite empire, you came right by Abraham's front porch. So all of these people would come by and he would extend hospitality and he would bow low. And they would say, what is your name? And he would say, ah, I am Avram. I'm Abram. Oh, the father of nations. Tell us, how many children do you have? He'd go, uh, <laughs> uh, none. I got zero. Ah, I see, father of nations, with no children. Nice to meet you, and off they would go. Oh, the shame. Oh, the, the indignity of it all. But Abram believes that God's going to do a thing. And he tells Sarah, and she believes 
But as it happens so many times, time passes. And time passes. As many as 10 years go by and still nothing. Abram's in his mid-80s. Sarah's in her late, mid-70s. And they're going, uh, I don't know, old gal. You're getting kind of long in the tooth. And she's going, oh, really? You think it's me? How do you know it's me? How do you know it's not you, big fella? And now there's all this discord and weirdness and, ugh, I don't know. But Sarah, man, she keeps trying. You know how this works. She's bought what to expect when you're expecting. She's got it on Kindle. She's gone to Walgreens. She's bought the whole, like, Sam's value pack of pregnancy tests. And every time she comes running out of the tent going, hey, father of nations, it's negative. Hey, father of nations, what's going on? It's negative. (sighs) What's Abram to do? Well, finally, Sarah decides, you know what? I'm a wife. I know how to do this. I'm going to make a honeydew list. And I'm going to put one bullet on that honeydew list, and it's going to have one word on it. And that one word is Hagar. Chapter 16. Let's continue. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And this is what happens. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Just in case you've forgotten, that's the problem. And she's dealing with all the shame. A woman's value in that day was how many offspring she could produce. Now here she is in her late 70s and she has no children. She is the product of shame. She had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now this has to be particularly galling to Hagar. I don't know how she comes to be a slave of a Hebrew family, but the Egyptians historically hated the Hebrews. The Hebrews were hairy, they kept sheep, and they smelled like sheep. Ew, ew, ew! The Egyptians couldn't stand them, and yet here's this young, likely beautiful, likely fertile Egyptian woman in their household, and Sarah's going to hatch a plan. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Whose fault is it? (laughs) I got a problem, it must be God's fault. You ever had that thought? Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Abram, we got a problem. I got a nagging wife. I'll fix this. I'll do this thing. Oy. As always happens, anytime we try to help God out, it's always going to cause a mess. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And you got to imagine Hagar's going, wait, 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 wait. His dude is 86. Come on now. Come on now. Let's be reasonable. And by the way, everyone lived in tight quarters, close community. Abram has at least 400 servants. They all know what's happening. They don't live under any illusion that, hey, Hagar's going in with Abram. I bet they're going to play checkers. No, they all kind of know what's happening. This thing is not done in secret. So, verse 4, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. (laughs) She gets a baby bump. And now this young Egyptian woman begins to talk a little playground smack to her mistress. I think in the Hebrew it goes like this, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I'm pregnant and you're not. Well, that's unwise. You might have heard the old proverb, hell hath no fury like the scorn of a woman. It comes from Genesis 16. Because Sarah's not going to put up with this nonsense. She kicks Hagar out. This gets awesome. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. 
wait, who made the honeydew list? Whose idea was this? Sarah. And Abram's going, hey, 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 I'm a victim. Yeah, you are, big fella. May it be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Captain Awesome, Abram, look what he says. Oh, I'll engage. No, behold, she's your servant in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Let's pick up again in verse 15. And Hagar, God brings Hagar back to their fold, and Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. The text is very, very intentional to tell us that Hagar bore this son. Hagar did it. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And Abram's got to be thinking, woohoo, it worked. God made me a promise. And, you know, like it says somewhere in the coming New Testament or something, God helps those who help themselves or something like that. No, it actually doesn't say that. Yay, but I've helped God out, and now I have a son, and this is going to be the, the source of my blessing. But God says, no, you've missed the point entirely. I never work through your performance. I never work by what you can accomplish. I only work through my promise. Let's pick up in verse 17, or chapter 17 now, in verse 15. Chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and worshiped reverently. No, no, if only. He fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham's going, Okay, now hold on, listen. God, let me help you out here. I'm 100. She's 90. I don't remember much from my freshman health class, but this part I remember. When that coach with the weird coaching shorts came in and said, you know, hey, when a man loves a woman, and then they put the slides up and it was awkward and we all chuckled. Well, I just remember that there was like an expiration date on that whole deal, and I'm 100, and she's 90, and you're saying that we're going to have a baby? Yo, God, we're the ones wearing diapers now. And God says, uh, you know what? I'm really not all that concerned about your, your problem there. So verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I still don't quite believe that you've got what it takes, that you have the means, that you have the power, or that you have the goodness to do the thing that you have promised. Just, just settle. Just Ishmael's good enough. God very forcefully shuts that down. God said no, verse 19. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Itzhak. Your wife laughed at me. Abraham, you laughed at me. Itzhak means laughter, joyful giggle. And now you will name this child Itzhak. You will name this boy joyful giggle because I will be the source of joy in your life. You laughed at me. <laughs> now you will laugh because of what I have done for you. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, not with Ishmael, 
whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now, Paul's going to pick up on all of that and say, listen, if you try to accomplish God's purpose through your performance, you are outside of his promise. Hear that again. If you try to accomplish God's purpose by your performance, you are outside of his promise. Sounds an awful lot like Galatians. These four chapters have helped us to arrive at precisely this point. So let's go back to Galatians 4 because now we can see why Paul was making such a big deal about this very strange illustration. Galatians chapter 4. Let me pick up in verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. In other words, according to Abram's ingenuity and his performance. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Oh yes, it was accomplished biologically, but only supernaturally through the promise of God. Verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, and Paul has jacked up New Testament scholars with that word for 2,000 years. Allegory frequently means something that has a different meaning that didn't actually happen. It's not what Paul means. I know that's what the word is, but that word was used different when Paul uses this word. He simply means this word, this may be interpreted figuratively or illustratively or as a type or an example. These women are two covenants. What he means is these women are representing two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. No, Hagar is not literally a mountain. That's, no, clearly. And Hagar exists some thousand or 500 years before Moses. So clearly she's not representing the law of Moses in her day. Paul's using this as an illustration. Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now remember, these False teachers have come into the churches of Galatia and said, hey, we're Jews. We are the children of Abraham. Don't you want to be like us? We're from Jerusalem. And Paul just drops a pin-pulled grenade in their lap and says, no, 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 no. You're from Jerusalem? You like Jerusalem, do you? Yeah, that means you're a slave. Jerusalem has always been in slavery. It was under the Assyrians. It was under the Babylonians. It was under the Greeks. It was under the Romans. If you've lived in Jerusalem, you've pretty much always been a slave. You think that's the, that's the thing? Jerusalem has always been a place of bondage. It's not what it's about at all. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, Paul's doing some weird language here, but let me, let me explain. This is not just merely flowery expression. In antiquity, when you say she is my mother, talking about your city, that's how you would refer to your hometown, your, your city of citizenship. Your passport was stamped with that city. See, we're not citizens of earthly Jerusalem. That's bondage. We are citizens from heaven, from above. That's where we are from. They think they are descendants of Isaac. They are not. The people who try to add works back onto the gospel, they're descendants of Ishmael. Jesus, in John chapter 3, is talking to Nicodemus. It's very dark outside, and so we call that passage Nick at night. See? Nicodemus comes at night. And Jesus tries to explain to Nicodemus, and he says, listen, Nicky, unless you are born from above, unless you come from heavenly Jerusalem, unless you are born from there, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Paul says the same thing here. This is our identity. This is our citizenship because we have received promise by no work or effort of our own. 
What is Paul saying? He's dropping a pretty large bombshell. So I want to help us just sort of illustratively by showing a little chart. On the left-hand side of this chart, you're going to see all of the things that Paul says in this passage that come if we try to live according to the law. Like, wait a minute, you, you want to live according to that? Do you even know what you're saying? Have you read the thing, Paul says? We got a slave woman who, bores, who bears Ishmael through performance. That's Hagar. It only ever provides and produces slavery as according to the present Jerusalem. And those people will always be a persecuting people. That's what it looks like. You, you want to go back to live according to that model? You want to live according to that scorecard? I don't think you understand how rigid that scorecard is. You can't just do better and get better. You have to be perfect on that scorecard. Are you sure you want to do that? Because if you do, it's, it's slavery, it's bondage, it's, it's, it's joylessness. However, then comes the gospel, the awesome announcement, the good news. And on the right-hand side, we get all of the differences that Paul puts out in this passage. There's a free woman, it's Sarah. Now, we're not told explicitly that, but there's an obvious comparison. It's Sarah. Her blessing comes through Isaac. It comes through promise, not through performance. It's Sarah, characterized by freedom. We are from Jerusalem above, and these people will always be persecuted by the people who try to live according to performance. They just can't seem to stomach a group of people who live according to grace and not law. Well, verse 27 is sort of the payoff. It's a strange passage. Paul's going to Keep citing Old Testament passages. In verse 27, he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one. That's bizarre. Listen, barren ones do not rejoice. They're barren. The thing they desire and want most, they cannot have or do. And so they're not generally characterized by rejoicing. Ah. This is our payoff. This is where we too get to celebrate the nothing that we bring. Because right here, Paul quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah writes this, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one, that means the one who is barren, will be more than the one who has a husband. Celebrate the nothing that you bring. Rejoice, because I am going to provide by promise. And the only way you will ever receive that is to recognize your emptiness. Rejoice, you who are barren. Now, if you're going to say that, you had better have the chops, the means, the might, the power, and the will to carry it off. And there's only one who does, and it's God. Paul quotes from Isaiah because Isaiah is writing to the nation Israel, who will soon go off into exile into Babylon. And they will think that they are through. They will think it's over. They have lost their national identity, and they are going to basically cease to exist in barrenness. But Isaiah writes and says, Rejoice in your barrenness because you get to see the power of God made real in your lives. So celebrate the nothing that you bring. And Paul equates that to what it means to be a child of the promise. You do not add anything to the work of God. You provide nothing. None of your performance adds an iota to what God will do. So rejoice, O barren one. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Hey, Galatians. I was with you. Remember early, he says earlier, a couple weeks ago, I am in labor pains for you again as if in childbirth. You have been born supernaturally, abnormally, through the promise and the provision of God. That's who you are. Please do not try to go back and now become Ishmaelites. There's no blessing. There's no, there's no inheritance there. But just as 
at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that was Ishmael, persecuted him, that was Isaac, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. He's talking about Genesis 21 now. You see, Paul's expositing a whole bunch of Old Testament scripture. In Genesis 21, at the time of Isaac's weaning, he's three years old, it's time for him to have a festival and a party because he's no longer nursing. At that party, Ishmael, who's a mid-teenager, is apparently mocking and taunting Isaac. Now, I don't know how much taunting a three-year-old recognizes, but it was enough that it gets recorded in Genesis 21. Persecuting him, mocking him, because Ishmael knows that that little kid is the recipient of all of the blessing. Notice where persecution comes from. It always comes from within the family. I rarely get nicked by people from other religions or other systems of faith. I usually have confrontation and persecution from people within, quote-unquote, the faith, who say, boy, you sure do preach a whole lot of grace. When are you going to start telling people what to do? And I go, mm, thanks, it means I'm doing something right. Because Paul never opened his mouth without preaching grace. And if I get nicked at all, it's always because people want me to preach more performance. That's where the persecution comes. Because Ishmael was the product of performance, and he can't stand it that someone else is a product of promise. But what does the scripture say? Again, quoting Genesis 21. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul says, you know, just like back in Genesis, get rid of the legalism, throw it out. To which many people have used this passage to say, now, if you're legalistic, we're going to show you the door and get out. Very careful, that's not what this passage is saying because if we kick out everybody who struggles with legalism, it'll be a very lonely room indeed. Jesus himself in the parable of the wheat and the tares says, you will always have both and you can't tell them apart. It's not your job to pull them up and to throw them out. No, Paul is saying, discover, root out any of those errant teachings about legalism and performance and dispel with those things, have nothing to do with that. That's not who we are. We are the children of the promise. We come from Isaac and not from Ishmael, spiritually. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That's who we are. We should have name tags. Hello, my name is such and such. I am in Isaac. I'm not an Ishmael. This passage reminds us that we are to have joy, experience liberty and life and celebrate the nothing that we bring. So let me just try to apply this very quickly with two very quick implications and they're very short. The first one goes like this. No, we can't. It's very simple. I know of so many Christians, uh, principally the one that occupies my bathroom mirror, who so often revert to Saturday morning cartoon theology. What do I mean? Well, when my kids were little, they used to watch fairly often this wonderful, great theological treatise called Bob the Builder. Oh, Bob, so swole up, so strong. He can fix anything. What was Bob's catchphrase? Anybody remember? Can we fix it? Yes, oh, dog, you got it. Christians. But the gospel comes along. The Apostle Paul comes along and says, no, no, actually, you can't fix it. Your best efforts will produce a flaming wreckage. You can't fix it. It's not about you trying to help God out with your efforts. 
there is this great world religion slogan that says, if it's to be, it's up to me. But Paul comes along and says, no. The minute you try to add performance to improve your standing before God or to gain right standing before God, you mess up the whole deal. The gospel plus anything is not the gospel. It is an announcement. The news flash of something that has occurred. No, we can't. Now, you may be listening to that and go, you know what? You keep talking about legalism and moralism and all these people who are trying to focus on performance. I don't really see all that. Well, <laughs> let me tell you where it rears its ugly head these days. And let me just tell you in advance, I'm going to vex a good portion of you. And I look forward to your emails. Anytime you want to see in our day and age, in the 21st century, in our region where we live, you want to hear where people are still wrestling with this notion of performance versus promise, simply bring up the issue of free will. God didn't choose me when I was good and ready. I figured it all out. I was the sharpest knife in the drawer. I chose God, to which the Apostle Paul will say, mm, no. That's performance. That's you showing God how smart and clever you are. No, Paul will say in Ephesians 2 and in Thessalonians and in Romans that we are dead in our trespass, unable to even find him, which is a grace because if we could find him in our trespass, we would not like what we found, says the book of Hebrews. But he chooses us. We are regenerated and we believe. All the difference in the world. But that notion of the bondage of the will that Augustine talked about is so deeply offensive to a performance-minded believer. You want to get someone really strung up? You'll watch some very sweet Christians get very ferocious in a very quick moment if you say that their will has been bound by sin. But that's what the clear, compelling, consistent teaching of Scripture says. No, we can't. But God, by grace, has moved his life toward us. That is love. And he's made his children the promise, is what Paul says to the Galatians. Now, the second little implication is even weirder, and it's even shorter. And it goes like this. Ike and Ish. Ike and Ish. Hopefully you can see in there Isaac and Ishmael. I wonder how much of our waking day have we taken our eyes off Jesus and what he has provided and what God has promised and we revert back to our own efforts, to our own pattern of practice and performance. How functionally, frequently, we say, thank you, God, for saving me, for getting me out of hell, and now I'll take it from here, and I'll be good, I'll try harder, I'll do better until I need you, and then you step back in, and, you know, and then that way I'll get myself to heaven, and you just give me a boost every now and then. When you do that, when I do that... <laughs> We're getting ishy. Something smells ishy. We're taking off that Ike name tag. We're putting on our Ishmael name tag. I'll take it from here. I will add too. But when we rethink our thinking and we regularly and rightly recognize our God, that we are the recipients of his promise and that he withholds no good and perfect thing, we are like the general who approached Alexander the Great. We celebrate the nothing that we bring and we recognize that we leave with everything and we have joy. And like Isaac, we are characterized as being a people of laughter, of joy. We giggle because I have everything for all eternity I will ever, ever want or need. So let me get real gritty. Men, in all of your waking hours, how much of it 
is Ike, how much of it is Ishi? And you consider your role as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother, as a neighbor, as a coworker, as a community member, as a churchman, as an uncle, how much of your waking hours are Ishi, where you're simply trying to slug it out because you know what? That's what we do. We follow the Judeo-Christian work ethic. It's not the Christian work ethic. Christian work ethic is Augustinian that says, love God and do as you please. Because I have received and I am his who loves me and has all power and might, I am free now finally to obey. But it's all the difference in the world. The gospel says, believe and obey. Legalism says, obey and believe. And all and achieve salvation. And those two systems have all the difference in the world. How much of your day, man, when you squabble with your wives or your kids, are you simply trying to slug it out without any comprehension that you have already received, not the wealth of Alexander the Great, but of God himself? Ladies, how much of your waking hours as a wife, as a sister, as a mom, as a daughter, as a community member, as a neighbor, as a friend, as an employee, is spent being ishy, trying to simply take that picture of that thing that you cooked with the oregano just so sprinkled so that when you Instagram it, you can do, oh, but doggone it, Tammy did it again better this time. And oh, you're just, so, uh, that's ishy. And it's slavery. No matter how many likes you get, it does not improve your standing before God in the slightest. He has never liked anybody's Instagram picture, not at once. How much as we deal with our kids are we engaging with them, frustrated because they're not doing what we want them to do and they should be doing it because it's the right thing. But as Nathan mentioned earlier, when you begin to see a heart change and your children begin to show you love and honor and respect just like we do, oh, the joy that we see in there. And so let me take it down one more notch. Students, I hope, I pray that you have never in this church heard someone say, you just have to try harder to do more to be better because that is shackling you with chains. Instead, we want to remind you that you are in the line of Isaac. You are children of the promise. We want to encourage you to love virtue more than fearing consequence. That you will obey simply out of a wellspring of love and recognition of whose you are and how much love you have and how much security you have. See, the good news of the gospel it's really great news if we were simply and only identified as in Isaac, but there's more. The real, true, ultimate, culminating seed of Abraham is, of course, not just Isaac. It's Jesus, who, when God looks at us, now sees us as if we were Christ, and he could not possibly have any grander affection for us. Would God the Father withhold anything from the Son? Of course not. Neither would he from us. And he loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. He is the true seed of Abraham. We don't have to earn his favor. It is finished. This is why the gospel is such good news. We look at Jesus and we celebrate the nothing that we bring. Well, that's not exactly fair because we do bring a handful, no, a dump truck full of our sin. And Jesus says, I'll take that. We celebrate that the nothing that we bring is precisely what is required for us to receive the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. And so, if you are here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, 
and you're still trying to do the right things to try to achieve good standing before God, let me just say, according to Paul, you are an Ishmaelite. And there's no hope in that. There's no hope for you to try to simply slug it out with your pattern of performance and practice. But I encourage you, I invite you to believe. I want to pick the lock of the bondage of Ishmaelism with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says you can be free to be a son of God most high. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is who he said he was. He lived a perfect life fulfilling the demands of the law and he paid the wages of sin. It's not fair. Oh, praise God, it's not fair. But he has the power and the means and the wealth and the will to give us far exceedingly more we can ever ask or imagine. I invite you to believe. For the rest of us, maybe you've been a Christian since Noah was a boy. Good. But how much of your day-to-day life reverts back and regresses back to Ishmaelism, where we just try to do our best and then we just get beat down? I want to re-invite you to rethink your thinking and to turn your eyes upon Jesus and recognize that you are to be characterized as a giggler. You bunch of little giggle boxes. Well, not really. That's offensive and irritating. But you are in Isaac. You are the line of the promise, the recipients of the joy that God gives. And when we find ourselves walking into different relationships and settings and we find ourselves getting ishy to stop, wait a minute, I'm in Isaac. I am in Christ. I have all that I need. And that will begin to change our interactions with our wives and our kids and our friends and our coworkers and everybody else around us. May we be an Isaac and not an Ishmael. May we be people who are free and not in bondage. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. God, I do pray if there is anyone in this room who does not know you, would you move irresistibly by grace and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? Would you raise the veil? If there is anyone here who does not know you, God, would you do for them what you have done for those of us who are believers? Would you give us the gift of faith that perhaps unable to fully explain it or understand it all or even agree with all of it, maybe not even like it all, we believe. We approach you and we ask you for eternity. We ask you that you would make us heirs of your kingdom, that you would give us all that you have to give. We confess that you will say yes. For the rest of us, Father, as we have allowed our lives to slip into Ishmaelism, where we focus on our own, pra- our own practice and pattern of performance, would you remind us that we are instead children of promise, just like Isaac, supernaturally born, citizens of Jerusalem above, never to be separate from you again. And because of that security, certainty, and joy, would you help us to live lives of purpose and meaning and impact? We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.